We're super excited to have Kevin O'Leary, the biggest shark of them all, this afternoon speaking to you in a featured presentation. Kevin is a successful entrepreneur. He founded several companies, but one of the ones early in his years was the learning company. The learning company bought his company for billions of dollars. This company, he started in the basement of his house, in the basement of his house, and built this into a multi-billion dollar company. Truly unbelievable. Before that, Kevin worked at an ice cream store, which he got fired from because he wouldn't scoop up gum off the floor, which, you know, that, that isn't cool to ask anyone to do that. And um, Kevin went on to be an entrepreneur and built a company that, like I said, the learn to the sold to the learning company. He didn't quit there. He could have stopped. He could have retired. But he went on, as you guys know, to be the biggest shark in the world. Some people call him Mr. Wonderful at Shark Tank. You know, he has successes like the Honey Fund, Plated, Benji Lock, and many more. On top of that, he doesn't stop there. He has a personal finance company called Beanstalk and the O Shares. I mean, this these are ETFs, a series of them that have done tremendously. Some of them are based on his grandma's value and his mom's value of like investing in companies that make money and produce a dividend. These companies have, these ETFs have done tremendous, 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 tremendous assets under management. But I'm gonna throw it to Kevin as he is gonna talk to you for about 15, 20 minutes. And then at the end, we're gonna leave time for 15 minutes of Q&A and we'll get some of your questions answered and you'll hear from the biggest shark himself. Kevin O'Leary, hello. Hey, how are you? Thank you very much. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what I see going on in terms of the direction of capital um, for the remainder of this year and early next year, and, and just in terms of, of, of what's capturing the, the minds of investors. And I think that's a good place to go. And, and I, I point something out, particularly about venture capital, that I've really seen change in the last, call it 14 months. When I think about the companies that, that I invest in now and the ones that I, I read the pitch decks of and all of the ideas that are coming forward as a result of the post-pandemic Digital America 2.0, if you want to call it that, the, the companies that are getting the best valuations, that are getting funded, that have tremendous risk from investors, have shifted from, from a few different perspectives. Let me give you a good example. If you walked into me today and said, look, I'm, I'm, I have a new product or consumer good or service and I want to launch it like I, I would have launched it in, in 2019 or early 2020 before the pandemic, and it would have looked like this. Most companies that were building up franchises were 50% in retail. They were figuring out how to sell products the way Nike did, you know, in a, in a mall, in a footlocker or whatever, or in a Target or a Walmart. That was half their business and they made 50 cents on the dollar doing that. And then maybe most companies had a relationship with Amazon and they would sell 40% of their product through there and they'd make 60 cents in the dollar because Amazon's a little more efficient than traditional retailers, but they don't give you back the name. And then maybe 10% was on their own platform selling to their own consumers, but that was a small part of their business. But when you sell direct, you only have two costs. You have customer acquisition costs and then you have the cost of manufacturing the product. So your margins can be as high as 90% if you do it that way. And so that's been very interesting. And now you go through a year and a half of pandemic or a year and a quarter worth of pandemic. And the companies that have been really successful, the ones that did the great digital pivot, where they basically changed their retail distribution. They took it away. They made it smaller. They shut stores and they went direct to consumer. They licensed the platform on Shopify maybe or did digital advertising on Facebook and figured out how to aggregate data from credit card companies 
with geolocking Facebook ads. I mean, I've seen all of this stuff happen in our own portfolio. And those companies are wildly successful. They've had a phenomenal run. And this digital pivot is no different than going back to a behemoth like Nike, where I started talking about. They did in five months during the pandemic, which they thought would take six years, which is get their business 50% direct to consumer all around the world. And the margins are better. You're gathering data from your customer base now. You're able to tell what their preferences are, color, size, flavor, all that stuff, when they have birthdays, and you're communicating directly with them. Those are the companies that I'm far more interested in today. And if you're telling me, "Law, well, I'm just going to do retail distribution, I'm, I'm unlikely to invest. I want digital strategies, direct consumer. I want to see you aggregate customer data. I want to see you target your advertising to reduce your customer acquisition costs. These are all the things that really matter today. And those are the strategies that are really getting investor interest. But there's one other element too, which I'm really, this has been very interesting over the last year. Let's say, let me give you an example. I mean, this is just a, a crazy story. I was on a call yesterday with a very big box retailer um, in the charcoal industry. So I have, I have a company called Prime Six, I'm gonna lift this up, all right? It's a charcoal company. What pollutes more than burning charcoal? I mean, talk about no sustainability. That's burning carbon, throwing it up in the air. Why would I ever invest in this? I only invest in sustainable companies because I know consumers want sustainability. It's not a marketing scam. It's I know where the demand is. But this company I have a big stake in. Why? Well, they figured out a way to disrupt the charcoal industry. Charcoal, you either get pure charcoal and you burn it or you get briquettes. Briquettes are crushed. Um, sometimes sawdust, and then they add a chemical to it to make it stick, and often they'll put a hydrocarbon in there so you can light it, and light the briquette, and it burns. It's full of pollutants. These guys at Prime 6, they took hardwood sawdust from all the you know, people that are milling hardwood all across America, and found a way to just stick the hardwood together into a log that had no um, chemicals in it, all sustainable product. And when you burn this log, it burns at 1400 degrees consistently for four hours and leaves no ashes, no pollutions. And as a result, it burns very clean, very hot. And every time you buy a log, they plant a tree. I heard that story. I went, wow, that's a hell of a story. That's a sustainability story. It's a direct consumer story. And they started selling these logs like crazy. Yes, it's a Shark Tank company. And when it aired, they sold millions of dollars with the product. But then all of a sudden, all the big box retailers start calling me saying, all the consumers want this product because they want sustainability. They don't want to burn carbon. They don't want to, you, to taste that crappy taste you get with, with briquettes. Get it into retail. And now it's sort of a reverse of the old model. But the point is they established their business with a sustainability, a mission not to pollute, and a fantastic product. That's the kind of deal I'm looking for now because those are the companies I can blow up to 50 to 100 million in sales and they get acquired by, you know, Either even SPACs are buying some of my businesses these days. So I think it's really intriguing to see this shift towards direct consumer and sustainability and mission. And that's very, very important for those of you that want to be entrepreneurs to find those companies. Now, another area which is really intriguing me that I have started to put money to work in, and this is that old Gretzky story don't be where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going. And we all love crypto, let's face it. I'm totally engaged. I've got a 3% waiting in Ether and, and in, in Bitcoin and, you know, riding that wave has been fantastic. But I think DeFi is where the puck is going. 
And DeFi, what that means is being able to monetize your crypto, monetize your Ethereum, monetize your stable coins, be able to get interest, loan them out. And right now, DeFi is really complicated. If you try and do it yourself, it's a nightmare. It's really tough. And I understand there's some great people out there that know how to do it. But I'm talking about a consumer version of DeFi that no one's done yet. That's what I'm working on. Something where you can just be a neophyte, you know, basically link your wallet up to a platform where you can actually immediately monetize it and get tax statements and be compliant. That hasn't been done yet. So when I start thinking about deploying capital, I'm working on some teams on that. So, you know, I love all the ways you can follow this, this whole crypto, call it a craze, call it whatever you want, but it's real money because institutions are starting to put money to work in, in Bitcoin at least. And I think you're going to see a continued interest in that. And that kind of morphs me into another area. We saw some really what I would consider irresponsible moves by the government in, in New York last week by suggesting they'd pass a bill that would ban Bitcoin, ban Bitcoin mining. I can't think of a worse idea. You're basically scaring capital out of that state. Bitcoin mining is capital intensive. It involves getting very advanced technology. It creates jobs and it also takes electricity that is otherwise not being used. You know, lots of falls and, and, and hydro, car, hydro electricity in, in New York and puts it to work and creates value in Bitcoin and pays taxes doing that. And all of a sudden, they just single-handedly say, you know, we're just going to threaten with this bill. And, of course, capital leaves the state immediately. I think we're going to be talking about that at the conference June 4th, June 5th, the Bitcoin conference in Miami. I'm certainly going to key down on that topic. I mean, that is just really bad. And it sends a signal to Bitcoin mining capital all around the world, don't come to, to New York. And for that matter, maybe don't come to the U.S. And that's really, really bad because right now 64% of of Bitcoin's mined in China and not on a sustainable basis. We should lead the world in taking our capital, investing it here stateside and competing and, and you know, build, building our, our infrastructure for Bitcoin mining here for the next hundred years. So I, I really find there's a lot of cross currents going on in crypto right now, a lot of debate. I think it's a very interesting space. So there's my two cents, Jason. I'll open it up for questions. You, you mentioned uh, the Bitcoin um, and Ethereum. You have like 3% of your assets in that. Is it more Ethereum or more Bitcoin? Or It's, it's, half, it's half a percent Ethereum and 2.5% and in Bitcoin. You know, I'm, I'll tell you right now, the, the, the way I look at it, and I, I'm just talking about institutional capital from my point of view. There's a tremendous amount of interest, but when it comes down to it, they want to own Bitcoin. And it's, it's the gold standard. I think Ethereum is the silver and everything else is a speculation. And I think there's a lot of cross currents, you know, a lot of different things going on. But right now, institutional buyers are trying to solve for owning Bitcoin and owning it in a way that they don't run afoul of their sustainability mandates. Because many of the larger institutions, as you know, have sustainability committees on top of their investment committees so that they want to comply with, you know, the direction uh, you, you saw that there's you know you see, the way it manifests itself look at something like uh, calpers questioning whether they can own chevron or exxon or slumberger i mean that that's that comes from the the mandate around sustainability so you're getting a lot of cross currents going on here same with same with bitcoin they'd like to know that it's mined sustainably that hydrocarbons are not burned and they're making the electricity that, mi that miners are using and within the crypto community and specifically the bitcoin community there's a lot of raging debate about this because clearly the Chinese don't care 
and they still make Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that you know American ingenuity can't solve for finding sustainable ways to do it. And in fact, the advance on what we do in creating green energy. That's the point. Does that go to like the ethical coin and et cetera that, you know, out of this country people are trying to do? You know, here's a speculation. It's really um, a debate. If it's true that, you know, you can't know where a coin, uh, it is true. You don't know where a coin was mined, but you know when it was created. But if you knew with certainty the province of a coin, if you actually bought shares of a company that is keeping its coin on its balance sheet and only mined ethically and sustainably, that's the way you could own coin by just owning their shares. And the more coin they amass on their balance sheet, the more you're, the more you're going to trade with the volatility of the price of Bitcoin, which is what you want if you're an institution. So I think there's a real opportunity in the next couple of years to fund miners that are going to, you know, mine coin ethically and sustainably. And I think you're going to get a tremendous amount of capital going in that direction because it solves two problems. You know the provenance of the coin you own, and you also know that it was mined ethically, and you can own part of the miner or a lot of the miner if you do it on a private basis. So when I talk to institutions about this, this is what interests them. They're saying, look, Bitcoins are is the one we're, we want to put a weighting on. Maybe it's three or five percent. It doesn't mean Ethereum won't, won't, won't get some of that, but right now the lion's share is definitely going to Bitcoin, and everybody knows that. And the rest are more speculative, volatile. But Bitcoin is finding its way to become a property within the institutional balance sheet. I, and I think 3% weighting, I have a 5% weighting goal, but now a 3% weighting in basically, I'm okay with that, it makes sense to me. Got it, okay, and then what about a Kevin O'Leary NFT? <laughs> you know, it, it, that's a very interesting idea, and I have certainly talked with my team about it. I've got some great crypto people working with me now. They're mostly focused on, on DeFi, um, and, you know, where to place my bets in the DeFi continuum, because I definitely think that's that's where the puck is going. Uh, but, you know, NFT is interesting. I, I think it's a highly speculative, volatile market. But um, I find it interesting that you can prove the provenance of any digital asset. It can't be copied or you know made fraudulent. And I think that could apply to music. It could. It's an interesting area to look at. It's certainly something I wouldn't have considered two years ago, but I am looking at now. Haven't haven't made a move in it yet, though, Jason. Yeah. I mean, I'm just it's it's uh, my first step was the Bitcoin thing. I started buying in 2017, but it was back then very you know disproved by the regulator. And clearly, what's happened in Canada and Switzerland and Germany, and New Zealand, and France and England and all these countries uh, opening up the regulatory environment to allow for things like ETFs and other ways to own. Some countries are credit investor only, but the point is you can now on a regulated basis own Bitcoin. Yeah. And so, Kevin, is that part of the reason you changed your like thesis on Bitcoin? Because like you said, a few years ago, the government regulations, like, is, is that why you're pretty bullish Bitcoin or what? What gives you the reason to be pretty bullish on Bitcoin and crypto in general? Because the regulator is starting to loosen up and it's clearly something that there may be regulations, but the point is they're contemplating them. It's an asset class that's here to stay. I, I'm, I, I work in a highly regulated environment. I have so many investments in fintech companies. You, you, you said some of the names earlier. These things are all regulated, and I don't. I never want to be non-compliant. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons I never invested in cannabis. It's not compliant yet on a on a federal basis. But I was able to invest in, in psychedelics because nobody's doing recreational psychedelics. They're doing medicines, and that makes sense. Yeah. And um, yeah, JR spoke about MindMed yesterday. 
unbelievable company now listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, excitement around it and doing a lot of experiments to help with depression, anxiety, stuff that you wouldn't think was possible 10 years ago. But I hear it's making an impact and doing great. No, it's, it's, it's one of the companies out there that's raising capital. I own others as well. The point is when you're when you're investing in junior pharma, they're all junior pharma because it's a brand new nascent sector of pharma. And so these companies didn't there weren't any trials going on even just four years ago. This is what's happening now. And you so I tend to overweight the companies that have multiple molecules, multiple um, trials, as opposed to the ones that have just a single molecule, single trial, because it's less risky. And and my med sort of falls into that category. They have, I think, something like 16 or 17. Uh, trials going on, which is a, a lot of diversity. That, that's that's my heaviest holding, my heaviest weighting in that sector. But I also own Compass, and when when the other ones come out and they they, they list, I'll own them too. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing. And I know you talked about it in your presentation a little bit ago, but uh, one of the listeners did ask us to ask you about this New York bill that you know that affects Bitcoin miners a little further. Um, why is it like? Like, why is this a big thing we need to talk about or potentially worry about? Because when the government destabilizes the regulatory environment, capital leaves. I was involved in financing a facility around hydroelectricity in New York, and we're in limbo now. We can't make a move. I mean, we don't know what the regulator is going to do until this whole thing goes through the process. So I think that's very harmful, uh, very irresponsible. It's not based in any fact that makes sense to me. I'm, I'm highly critical of that move. I don't like it when the government goes against a brand new business. Bitcoin mining is relatively young. It's less than you know, 20 years old. And we are starting to establish ourselves as world leaders in sustainable Bitcoin mining. And all of a sudden we get this. It's a, it's a sucker punch from right out of the blue. And I think it really hurts the industry. And it, it I, I think where we have to go, and I, I speak now as an investor in the industry, and I certainly talk to lots of CEOs in Bitcoin mining because I'm interested in can I provide capital for expansion and get paid back in coin and on royalty basis. Um, I don't think the industry has done a particularly good job in representing itself to something like this. And I think we need to form some form of voice, whether that's a, a group of CEOs that take leadership positions in trying to negotiate with, with state officials and even federal officials if that's necessary. But most company, most sectors have lobby groups. I don't think we need that in, in the same way in, in Bitcoin mining, but we need a voice. And so at least some kind of way of, of establishing a voice that says, here are the mandates by which we adhere to. And we believe that these are good for business, they're good for investors, they're good for the state and, and, and just, because we, we haven't done that yet, and it's been a big mistake. And, and if you don't speak up for yourself, you get New Yorked. That's what happens. You just get some random you know, regulator saying, all right, we'll just shut it down. And they effectively shut it down by making it unstable. You don't know what the policy is. So rather than have that happen, it's very important that we go to state you know, policymakers and say, hey, we're responsible corporate citizens, and we have a very important role in, in advancing technology and being competitive in the globally competitive market of Bitcoin mining. So, is it we have to like start lobbying these senators? Is that like what we have to? We, like, is we have to like you said like an organization? But how do we get through to them? Is it is it like us calling up congressmen? Like how? Like what do you suggest? 
I, I suggest, and I, look, I'm trying to be the catalyst for this. I don't know if I'll be successful or not, but I'm certainly having multiple conversations with the larger players in the space and saying, what are your ideas? Because I'm an investor. I want to, I want to deploy capital in a, in a stable environment that isn't going to shift on me. I have plenty of money to put to work, and I don't want a situation where I don't know the outcome, as in I have in New York now. And I think everybody's concerned about what they saw. Everybody realizes that it came out of the blue. And, and so what, you know, if, if we could gather maybe six or eight CEOs that represent the lion's share of, of, of capital being raised, they could be a voice. And, it, and, and that is a good thing for the whole industry. You get lots of controversy within different CEOs about how to mine or what the best technology is or what their strategies are. That's all fine. But they have one common interest. It's called capital. It's a capital intensive business. You have to raise capital. When you have uncertainty, your cost of capital goes up. It doesn't go down, it goes up. So by not addressing the New York issue, the cost of raising capital for all miners will go up. That's bad. So everybody has their interests, all right? And I'm just saying this is a common interest amongst all miners. If you're trying to raise capital so you can buy new technology or, or expand your operations, you want the lowest cost of capital you can get. And it, as of the New York, as of last week, the cost of capital has gone up. There's a lot more concern now that other states would do the same thing. And so I, I suggest that what we have to do is form some kind of group representing the industry that can speak to politicians, speak to policymakers, speak to investors about their plans to provide ethically, ethical and sustainable mining, which seems to be the concern of the government in New York in the first place. So, you know, if they're really worried about it, let's address it. Speaking of government, what do you think about Biden's uh, first 100 days? I think he's done a great job on what he promised in terms of vaccine inoculation and, and solving the, the logistics for vaccine. Most people that want one have either received one or both shots. And I think that's very, very important for getting the economy back on its feet. The tax proposals, I understand, are really bowing to the left wing uh, side of his party, which I'm sure he has to do to keep everybody consistently moving in the, in the same direction. But it would take, if these policies were enacted as, as they've been suggested right now, it would make the United States the highest tax jurisdiction on the planet, which I just can't see being good for business. And, you know, we're in the middle of the pack now on corporate taxes. I can't imagine going back to the highest taxes again. It just doesn't make sense. We still have 9 million people unemployed. Um, that would be a very bad outcome, and I don't think it's going to happen. I think that's going to get caught up in a lot of debate, even within his own party. And so I'm not. That's why the market's ignoring it. It's such an outlandish idea um, that I don't think it's going to actually ever come to pass. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, Biden. I heard him talk about how we're, you know, the worldwide marketplace these days. But with the taxes that are proposed, companies are going to get up and leave. I mean, I know that's the conversation that the real conversation happened in our company. It's just, it's crazy. And we want to employ more people, but when you see the tax structure that's proposed, it's scary. It, it, it's true. It's truly scary. And, and I, and the other thing is like restaurants can't even hire people these days because they can just sit, sit home on unemployment. Yeah. That, that is a, that is an unusual situation. You can see a microcosm of what would happen if we raise taxes by simply looking what's happening to states like New York, Massachusetts, and California. I'm sitting here in Miami and half of New York is working out of here now. They've made a decision to move uh, because of taxes. There's almost a 17% difference. In fact, if those Biden tax packages um, you know, were put in place and you lived in New York City and Manhattan specifically, you'd be one of the highest taxed 
persons on earth. It would, it would just be an unbelievable exodus of, of people and capital. And so I, it, it just can't work that way. The, the difference between now and the 60s when the rates were higher, and you know, politicians often say, well, I remember when corporate taxes were 30 plus percent, but that's when there wasn't a global competition. That's when there wasn't an internet. That's when there wasn't, you know, uh, digital drift, as I call it. You, you can easily move your headquarters and you would. And people can are fungible and go anywhere they want now. They don't have to stay in New York to, to run their business. They can come down here and do it by Zoom, as you and I are talking right now. So the whole point is, at the end of the day, it's not the same as it was. And you can't just jack up taxes like that. But look, everybody can have their opinion. It's getting that policy passed is going to be very difficult, I think. And if the U.S. does become the highest tax jurisdiction, they'll simply not move to Florida. They'll move out of the United States and they'll do the inversions again, as they were doing prior to the changes that were made by the last administration. Yep. And and I've been to Puerto Rico twice in the last couple of months because we're considering that. I mean, it's a, another tax thing that they have proposal because they want to bring business to Puerto Rico. Absolutely crazy. One of the things um, you're always you're early on a lot of stuff. I mean, when you started OShares, there weren't ETFs like yours. Can you talk a little bit just briefly to the 50,000 listeners today about uh, OShares? Sure. You know, O-Shares, um, the whole idea behind that was I was trying to solve for my own long-term investing. Uh, I, I, I have trusts and, and operating businesses that, that need 6% distributions from the capital they have on their balance sheet. And so I don't want to own the S&P 500. I want to own the 100 or so companies in it that don't have the risk of cutting their dividends or don't have the risk of being unprofitable, don't have a situation where you know, federal policy is against them, like the hydrocarbon companies, the oil companies, that kind of thing. So I'm looking for companies that are that are high return on assets. And so an ETF and have less debt and are, are increasing their dividends. And so you, you use rules to, to mine that information. And that's basically what OUSA is. It's a subset, subset of the, of the uh, S&P 500. And it's designed to try and mitigate risk and drawdowns. You know, if you own the S&P and the S&P goes down 38%, you're, you're down 38%. I'm not saying that'll happen, but if it does, you'd rather own the stocks that have less volatility. And that's what OUSA tries to do so that you don't participate in 100% of the drawdown. Maybe you participate in 60 or 66% of it, but you're, preser you're preserving your capital. And the same for the Russell 2000. I don't own the Russell 2000 because the majority of the companies there have abysmal return on assets and many aren't even profitable. But you can find using the same rules, but find me the companies that are profitable, do have cash flow, have really high return on assets. And that's what OUSM is, another rule-based OShares ETF. So maybe two or 300 stocks out of the uh, Russell 2000 that are worth owning that again, pay a portion of their distributions in the form of dividends. And that's what I, I use. And then for Europe, which is really interesting now, it's a zip code everybody's hated for a long time. There are 50 stocks in Europe, in Switzerland, in, in Europe, and in, in England that are really interesting because they're in many cases traded a discount to their counterparts uh, in the US. So like a Nestle or a Roche, I mean, those are companies, why not own them? I mean, they sell much of their product in the US anyways, and they're trading in some cases at significant discounts. So that's another ETF, O-E-U-R. And then finally, um, you know, the, the one that did so well last year was OGIG, O-G-I-G, and I think we're in the third or fourth inning there. All the companies that provide it's the, the global internet giants that are encapsulated, including the FANGs are in o OGIG, but the FANGs are the, 
some of the slower growing companies now compared to what's going on in other countries, Asia, South America, Canada, um, and Europe. There's great internet giants there, and you'll find them all in OGIG. That's the O-Share story. Okay. And I think one thing that listeners are asking me, but Kevin is very like into like balance and not doing risky things. So he bought Tesla, but then he, as it went up, he sold every month that, to keep the percentage at a certain allocation. The question I got, got asked, someone asked, is, is Kevin still bullish on Tesla? Um, because they said you were selling, but I know you sold because as the price went up, it was making too big of a portion of your portfolio. So what's your take on Tesla though, either way, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, when, when, a, when a name, a single stock becomes more than 5% of a very diversified portfolio, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell it down to 5%. Tesla was a rocket ship for me to the moon, as they say. I bought it at 235 pre-split and it just did nothing except go up. So, you know, my strategy is to keep balance in portfolios. That's what I do. But I'm still very bullish on Tesla. You know, it's still, it's still a very interesting company. I consider it a data company, not a car company. And it continues to mine data by what it does and advanced battery technology, sure. But, you know, I, I'd say that for any stock, not just Tesla. You, you have to monitor your – if you let a stock become a huge portion of your portfolio, you're taking inordinate risk. You have to have diversification, in my view. And I have simple rules, 5% weighting in any one name, 20% in any one sector. So when technology gets too big, I sell that down too. And I, I try and keep a balance of, of sectors at 20 and 5 and when we have drawdowns, we have corrections, that protects you because you basically don't have all of your bets in one name or one sector. Right, that was, that's amazing. You say 20 and five, so 20% in any one sector, 5% in any individual company? Yeah, that's how it works. And it works very, very well. It has worked for decades for me. And so wow. that, that requires some work each quarter. Um, obviously I use O-Shares ETFs for a lot of the equity side, but I do the same thing in bonds. You know, it's, it's, I'm very careful that the bond portfolio, no one bond is worth more than 5%. You, you basically get, you know, very close to index returns, um, but you also have a lot less volatility with that strategy. And if you care about volatility, and some people don't, I do, uh, because I'm really trying to distribute 6% a year off these portfolios. This has worked for me for decades, and I continue to use it. It's a very, very simple strategy. But it just requires every quarter you go look at what's overweight 5 and sell it down, and then you can also take that capital and, and uplift some names to uh, from three to five percent. Right, right now, Bitcoin's three percent. I might raise it up to five. Who's, who knows? I'll wait till the, in the next quarter. Do you, and you'll do this in your individual accounts as well. Is what you're saying? That's my operating company. Yeah, but you know that's sort of. Uh, but I also have various trusts that do the same thing. The, the, the strategy works whether it's your individual account or your operating company or your balance sheet. It's the same thing. Diversity is a good thing. There's no question about it. Wow, that, that that no, that is awesome. Twenty and five. I, you know, the Dow is up, Nasdaq's down, and the past couple couple of weeks, and a lot of people are getting hurt because they're so into technology stocks, um, and not the you know, the Dow stocks. Yeah, I mean, at, at any time sectors rotate. I don't think it's over for technology. I think these these rotations come and go, but in the end, it's very find, hard to find the growth that these companies have in any other sector. Tech continues to shine because of its growth metrics. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that's and, and so people like growth and innovation. But I get I get your point on that. Now, do you have a forecast what you think Bitcoin can get to? I think it's impossible to forecast Bitcoin. You know, the, the question is, does it have its correction this year down first? I just the, the intriguing thing for me in terms of forecasting Bitcoin is to listen to 
a good one with Larry Fink's letter about six weeks ago, when he said the majority of our giant institutional accounts do not ask us for Bitcoin. They're not, in, they're not involved. I think that's changing. Right. I think, I think um, they're starting to look at it in, in sort of the one to 3% waiting area. And they're trying to figure out how do I own it? Do I own it directly? Or do I own it through the balance sheet of a company that's keeping its mind coin on its balance sheet? And then of course, because these are institutions that have sustainability mandates and ethics mandates, they have to make Bitcoin fit under those compliance logistics. And that's really about you know not uh, buying or supporting the burning of coal for mining Bitcoin. Now, whether you agree with that or not, it doesn't really matter. That's what they have to work with. It's not like it's an option. They have to deal with that every day because sustainability communities have set these mandates about you know climate and everything else. So it's something the industry should really think about. It's there. It's not going away. And there's huge demand if somebody solves for that and can create coins that have provenance that have been mined in an ethical and sustainable way. Because after all, as I said earlier, the reason New York caused the problems it's caused is exactly those issues. They heard from enough lawmakers, policymakers, and constituents that they're concerned about the sustainability of burning up that much electricity to make Bitcoin. I don't agree with them, but it doesn't matter. The policy has already destabilized investment in New York in Bitcoin mining. So we, so we just have to create it or find someone that does create it, the ethically mined, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure easier said than done, but it'll, it, we'll figure it out. But um, for the last like couple minutes, few minutes, a uh, couple of personal questions. So you're probably one of the hardest workers that I personally know. Um, I don't think there there are two of you, but there could be. Um, <laughs> like what time do you, I know you go on the uh, Peloton or something. What, what time do you get up in the morning? What time do you go to bed? Do you check your email actively? If you check your email, how fast are you responding? Give some people some advice on how you are able to manage everything being the biggest shark in the world and everyone wants your attention. Um, how do you how do you do it all? I would love to just get is any details you can give because I think it'll help the, the 50,000 listeners to the show today. Yeah, well, I enjoy working. I mean, there's no question about it. You have to, you have to love what you do. Um, I try and get up at 530 uh, work out for an hour. Um, you know, if I'm going to do early morning television, it's generally in that 7.30 8.30 hour. So I want to be, you know, finished working out and in suit by then and do the hit because it's usually eight or nine minutes in the morning. It's a show like CNBC Squawk Box or something or even working with you. It, de it depends. Whatever it is, I want to be, you know, fresh and bushy-tailed to say the least. Um, I'm really into uh, some of these protocols now about the food I eat and, and sort of how I exercise and all that. It's just about longevity. I'm trying to enjoy myself and the quality of life I have. And so it, it's, it's really sort of a, a routine. But I, the advice I give people is if you break up your day into 30-minute segments, which often what, is what people do, put some white space in there for yourself that you can just use up to, instead of booking you know, meeting after Zoom meeting or whatever you're doing, put a, put a couple hours of their white space to, 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 to recharge or, or do something that's you know, I like to play guitar, whatever, you know, get into photography, something that's alternate to just business. And that gives some balance to your life and you can spend some time with your family. I'm very into that routine that way. Um, but I do say one trick I learned, one hack if you want. Write down on a piece of paper or, or something you stick to your mirror and just say, what are the three things I got to achieve tomorrow? And do those first. It's a really corny hack, but it really, really works. 
So I don't really engage in anything until I've got those three things done. Do you really do? You really stick to that? Yeah, I do. I've been doing it for years. It's a really good metric. It could be something like go to the dentist or something, right? It's just something you got to get done. And I do three of those, and I'm I find myself way more productive, way more productive. And do you do you put it on your mirror, or do you have it on your iPhone? Like, what do you do? No, I used to do it digitally, but I I find it that it's not as effective. You can ignore your phone blasting a beep at you. You can't ignore that thing stuck on the mirror. And so, um, you know, MC Squares is is a product that I it's one of my companies that makes sustainable sticky notes, and they stick on mirrors and they have erasable. You know, what's the name of that again? MC Squares. MC Squares. All right. Yeah. Uh, I got to check that out. Uh, oh, yeah. That's that's sweet. Sustainable energy. Okay. Um, yeah, so no, it's, it's done very well. We've actually funded it with crowdfunding with, um, you know, Start Engine, one, another one of my companies. And so you know, we work together. But that that is, there's one sticking on my mirror right now. I've already written two things down for it tomorrow. It's really very, cor very corny, but it really, really works. Really it, it, works. And speaking of Start Engine, I'm assuming Start Engine like propelled this year with like the government changing the funding limit. Is that right? Yeah, it's up to five million now. So th that really changes the game because the traditional VC would say, "Well, forget about equity crowdfunding because you can only raise a million seventy thousand. Not anymore. You can compete with any any you know venture firm and, and raise five million bucks your first round at terms that are are you know that make sense for you. I hate pref shares. I hate VCs that take a proprietary position on your balance sheet and misalign your interests with your shareholders. That, that sucks. So why not just use crowdfunding for the same amount of money and get something that completely aligns every shareholder together and even allows your customers to become shareholders. So that's a big shout out for Start Engine, but they're number one in the equity crowdfunding in the US. They've got more investors than anybody else. It's an unbelievable solution. I wish it was around when I started. It's an unbelievable solution to build a cap table with you know ambassadors, zealots. I mean, there's a, it's a no-brainer thing to do. No-brainer. I mean, just like no-brainer. I mean, it's start engine guys. Check it out. And you sometimes get to pitch to Kevin. I have some, some friends who won a pitch contest who are doing a sweet company. And what 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 exposure you get? All right. Well, Kevin, thank you for coming on the the Benzinga Global Small Cap Conference today. Um, what you're doing, like I, I asked Kevin Structure. You know, he said he gets up at five thirty in the morning. He answers emails. Has his three most important things. Probably goes to 10 o'clock at night. Um, he's in several companies, but I think one of the common elements is you, you find good leaders of these companies. So you're not, you don't have to be in the details every day, right? Yeah, no, they run great, you know, great companies. And I, it's, it's funny that in the last few years, the majority of my returns have come from companies run by women, which has been fantastic. And it just shows you during volatile times like the pandemic years, they mitigate risk very well. So, you know, we tend to have a lot of companies with women CEOs. Prime Six is a one we talked about earlier. That's a, that's a, a woman CEO. And she connected with the, the buyer, who is a woman, too, that we were just running a huge deal through. So I really like to see that happen. That's great. That's we're, we're obviously casting right now for a new season of Shark Tank, season 13. Bring your ideas. Uh, I'll see you in Hollywood, as, that, as I like to say. We're going to be shooting that in July. It's very exciting. So what you're saying is more women should apply. I mean... Because I know you've well, said that. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I'll invest in a goat if I can get a return. But I'm just I'm saying that women have done a hell of a job for me, and, and I have a lot of them. They're, they're more than 50% of my companies are now run by women CEOs because the outcomes have been ph phenomenal. You know, I, I don't, I don't, the glass ceiling in corporate America um, should is broken by by achievement and merit. You know, you can't make it political. But th there's enough women now really blowing the doors away in terms of how they're operating. 
that they'll make it for sure. I mean, it's you'd be foolish not to have a lot of women uh, running various businesses within large corporations because they do it so well. Yep. No, that's unbelievable. You have some of the most famous lines in Shark Tank history that people go around and say anywhere and everywhere. And like one of them is you're dead to me. If like someone just like ignores your offer and, and I, and I bring it up to someone, I was somewhere this weekend and the line was used and I, I loved it that it was used and <laughs> someone else, I heard it, I was at a restaurant and someone else said, it and they're like talking about you, these lines that you have or Mr. Wonderful, is this something that you think of like, like a week before, or is it just like it came out of nowhere and then it just becomes a thing. I, I they just come out of nowhere, and I often think many of them are inspired by Barbara, who sits to my right, because the only reason that she gets the Shark Tank every year on time is I buy her a new broom. And I've been saying that for years, and every time, it's, 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 the, <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. I was on YouTube the other day, and somebody, you know, put together like 12 years of, of, uh, of those uh, Kevinisms, he calls them. Oh, I love them. it. I love and it. I got to yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. I got to find that guy to do that with us. That that's awesome. Thanks, Kevin, again for coming on. We had MindMed yesterday. Um, Kevin has more companies. Check out Beanstalk, O Shares, and you know just this, just the rest. Go pitch Start in, Engine. The more women leaders who are have companies. Go pitch Shark Tank. You know the only way things happen is if you go out and do it. And Kevin talked about how he puts three things on his mirror. I honestly, when he said it just now, and he was giving that advice. I honestly thought he was just saying it like, hey, this is nice advice. But you heard him just now say, like, I actually have two things on there for tomorrow. If you don't, if you don't believe it, he's telling you right here. Like, this to me, like, is the power of doing these things. And look what this guy's accomplished. It doesn't just happen. Oh, I'm sitting here in the Shark Tank seat. No, it's by doing things and making things happen. So thank you, Kevin, for coming on. We appreciate it. We look forward to talking to you soon. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.